0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: foundation arvind gupta the reason
2: that people are talking about india is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years
1: enjoy this week's show Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by The Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today for the hour, we have a very special show. Uh, Please note, I'm registered representative for Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and these are of our guests are their own, and not those of Wizards, which affiliates. This is our first show at our 12 p.m. time slot, uh, and starting today, Behind the Marks will be live every Friday at noon Eastern time here on SiriusXM, channel 132. You should also follow the channel at his new Twitter handle, which is S. SXM Business, at SXM Business on, on Twitter. Uh, and really, what a great day. Um, you know, we, the very first show Professor Siegel did uh, for Behind the Markets, he had Bob Schiller on. Uh, and the sec- the very first time we're doing this new broadcast at 12, we have Bob Schiller on. And, and Bob has a new book, Narrative Economics, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. Uh, we're going to get to talk to him about his new book, uh, but, Professor, before before we do that, I know you always like to talk about what's going on in the markets every week, and we are still
2: at new highs on the S&P. They're, they're hanging in there. Yeah, so when there's a tweet that there's a deal, the market goes up 150 points. Uh, and then when there's a tweet, we're not quite there at a deal. It goes down 150. I've, it's bouncing around like a ping-pong ball, but definitely – Uh, you know, we talked about last week that great employment report. I mean, I think the background uh, has changed. Uh, The recession fears, as you were just talking about, you know, just uh, before before our noon show, uh, have definitely dissipated dramatically. Um, And so, you know, uh, the market is hungry for a deal. If if there is a deal with a reduction in tariffs, you're going to get a 10% rise in this market. I think pretty easily um, uh, in 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 here, uh, and I think that's what uh, that's what they're looking for. I, I think it's also interesting, of course, um, you know, on the political front, uh, Bloomberg um, suggesting that he might uh, jump into the market. Uh, I heard Dan Lonely say that. Uh, our, our Twitter feed is 50-50. The betting markets are 75% that he actually will uh, jump into the Democratic nomination. Um, I, my take, a lot of people are saying, oh, we can't win, a billionaire can't win and all that. But my take is that, uh, yeah, it's definitely a long shot that he can win. However, uh, could he be a kingmaker here? Uh, he... Could he get enough votes that actually could throw the nomination um, uh, next summer to one of the more moderate uh, Democrats? Because the race is definitely tightening. Uh, Warren, who looked like he, she was running away with it just a month ago, has really dropped dramatically. I mean, she's still the front runner in the betting markets, but the polls have tightened. Buttigieg has certainly surged. Uh, people are looking for a moderate, and uh, clearly, uh, Bloomberg is there. So, uh, you know, he, 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 even without winning, uh, he could get a block of votes. I, I think I heard. Um, earlier today that uh, 24 Democratic primaries independents are allowed to vote and in 19 of those even Republicans are in, uh, allowed to vote so there's a, a, m- a much more moderate block out there that could definitely be attracted by Bloomberg and give him a, a sizable chunk of, um, of uh, uh, votes Uh, by the time the election comes. So, I mean, it's... what do you think about? I, I saw somebody, you know, yeah. I forget who it was on Twitter, say, "Well, maybe they he'll he's
1: just trying to enter the race so he can join the vice president ticket of Buttigieg's yeah. party and spend yeah. unlimited billions I, to I, help I, support uh, Buttigieg." Uh,
2: yeah, I, I mean, I I've thought that too. With you know, Buttigieg, Bloomberg, or is it Bloomberg, Buttigieg? Yeah. Or, uh You know, uh, one or the other because they're both moderates, and Buttigieg, of course, would have the younger vote and yet a stabilizing vote there on. On Bloomberg's side, uh, that's a that's definitely a possibility too. I mean, I think there's a lot of possibilities that are are opened up, and mm-hmm. um, uh, it's exciting to see. Rates have moved back up. Rates are. Whoa. Well, yeah, are really I mean, uh, well, with the, the better economic news, you know, you would expect those rates to go up with with more of a possibility of a trade deal. Again, it's not done deal, but that uncertainty. Uh, is eliminated. Uh, you know, you you really did that, and you really kind of almost got a panic yesterday in the in the ten-year market. Really saw the that bond kind of break through some uh, barriers, and looks like it could be heading heading towards two. The good news is we've really righted the term structure now. There's it's it's uniformly up uh, in all the treasury maturities, and I mean you know that basically is uh, you know good news. Uh, uh, into the into the future. Now, you think the long term rates are going to stay constrained, but
1: how do you think about where in this low w- rate world? How do you think about the the longer term end of where the rates might normalize to?
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I I you know, we've talked about the fact that I think we're in a permanently lower interest rate world. Um, what. That does mean to me that I don't I mean I think that the the the, the ten year maintenance go above two and a half percent, uh, and bounce really between two, two and a half or one and three quarters and two and a half depending on the strength of economic. but uh, again, it's it's proved to be such a huge, excellent hedge against the risk assets. and the demand is just uh, you know, really astronomical for for anything that is a hedge. And so it's being taken up. and despite a trillion dollar deficit, which dumps all these bonds onto the market, it's really been absorbed really easily on on uh, uh, on the markets here. So, uh, uh, you know, at, at this point, I, I think we're in a permanently lower interest rate world. Um, I mean, the Fed is grappling with it. I mean, you know, just in their September meeting, they never thought they'd get down as low as they have now gotten down right now. But we are on pause, definitely with the improving economic situation. Um, and you look at the Fed funds market and it really says pause. So right now, they're happy where they are. There's no going to be no movement downward in December barring a disaster um you know uh, I think we're at the structure that the uh, the Fed wants to be in the market is comfortable with
1: let me welcome in Bob to the program uh, Bob Schiller professor of Yale winner of the Nobel Prize uh, in economics Bob thank you for joining to the program
0: nice to be here Jeremy uh,
1: and, and uh, don't need a lot of introduction there but maybe tell us tell our listeners a little bit about what got you started working on the new book narrative economics
0: well uh, I I have a long history of thinking about these things. It goes back to my teen years. <laughs> I have to add in the years I was influenced by Jeremy Siegel. Oh. <laughs> when we were graduate students together. Right. And uh, I learned back then from Jeremy a uh, better appreciation for what I might call real-world economics. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> that is less ethereal. I mean, I, I respect those people, too, but we were like twins. <laughs> it seemed that way for a while as graduate students.
2: 52 years we've known each other was 1967 where we, where we first met. And it was 2013, I guess, that was your winning year for the prize, Bob, am I right uh, on yeah. that? And that was when I, I interviewed you, I think just before you went down, um, uh, and I was honored to be able to accompany you to Stockholm for that wonderful, uh, wonderful yeah. ceremony.
0: Thanks for that. Yeah, that was a wonderful ceremony. If you're ever offered it, Jeremy, don't turn it down. <laughs>
2: I'm not holding my breath, Bob, but thank you. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, how stories go viral and drive major economic events. Um, uh, Bob, you know, I want to, I, I found the book fascinating. Let me just tell I've learned so many little facts that I had never known before, and we want to, we want to get to them, um, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, because you did appear a couple weeks ago on on CNBC and um, uh, you you kind of lit up a few Twitter accounts there, Bob. <laughs> um, uh, you you stated uh, that um, you thought that. Uh, And if I got this quote right, I think that strong spending has to do with inspiration for many people provided by our motivational speaker president. That's right. Who models luxurious living. Um, uh, Many people think he models a lot of other things which aren't quite as uh, attractive as that. But um, tell us a little bit about what you thought about that and what, what, what reaction did you get on that? comment.
0: Yeah, I, I can't prove causality here. Uh, but I think that economists are retic- too reticent to bring up theories like that, uh, because they can't prove it. But you know, all the economic models, they're all approximations anyway, and there must be some truth to what I've been saying. <laughs> I think that uh, we live in a psychological ambiance of whoever it is we're talking about. And Trump is talked about Amazingly much. If you look at uh, Google News on a typical day, the first five articles featured there will all be about Trump. I mean, he like just dominates our thinking. So how could it not be important for understanding people's decisions whether to spend or not? If you're deciding to buy a new car or not buy a new car, that's such a fuzzy decision, right? I mean, you could wait another year; the old one still works, uh, and. I think that it becomes a very psychologically induced decision. So it seems very plausible to me that the Trump narrative is in, is infecting consumers purchases.
2: Well, he 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 has a very pro-business. I mean, obviously his own lifestyle being, you know, uh I mean, a multimillionaire, we don't know exactly his wealth, but uh is there and goes to Mar- Mar- Largo down in Florida um uh on that um but uh I, I'm, I'm just wondering uh do you think that do you think that this current economic record economic expansion uh is is really due to um trumpism or
0: would it exist had
2: Clinton won the presidency three years ago how, how do you what do you think
0: well I think that uh, my book was a call for more attention to these narratives, and I don't have the answer to all the. The problem is there's many narratives competing at the same time, and this isn't the only one. Uh, and so I'm not done with this book. Maybe I'll come out with a second. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does
2: generate a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, ideas. I mean, I remember actually, uh, and I think it was right after Trump was. Um, uh, Elected, uh, we both appeared in New York, and I think we were interviewed. Uh, was it NPR or one of one of those major networks? And for one of the few times, we were both very bullish on the stock market. You know, we're known as. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we both thought that the Trump model, pro business, going to get a corporate tax cut, um, uh, was going to be weakened. good. Yeah, yeah, regulation down. I mean. Do you think uh, how, do you think that that has been a major reason for the rise in the market over the last 3 years?
0: Well, if you look at the market, it's been going up since 2009. Uh so it uh, Obama gets some credit, I guess. Um it doesn't look like there's been a you know, we need a, a Trump explanation. But I think the fact that this expansion Uh, since 2009, of the GDP, of the economy, is the longest expansion ever. So it seems plausible to attribute some of its endurance to the Trump effect.
2: Well, our expansions have been getting longer. Um, You know, we had that 10-year expansion from 90 to 2000. Uh, a lot of that attribute to the fact that we are moving away from a manufacturing economy which has seemingly more cycles, more to a service or, or an economy which is more stable and therefore doesn't dip us into a recession as much. So I think there's really strong evidence we where we're getting to longer cycles. And, of course, as I point out, the U.S. now passing 10 years, 10 and a half now, um, is by no means the longest of – Industrialized countries. Uh, I think Australia is still in a record 26-year expansion. Um, UK didn't have a recession. Uh, I think in 2000, so they went from 1990 to 2007, which was a 17-year expansion. So the potential is that we could we could go much longer. What what do you do you uh, worry? No, I, I mean, I what do you, you think? think?
0: we could go much longer these things are not very accurately forecasted nobody can forecast out more than a year for the economy uh with any high accuracy so yeah they could definitely go it could they could go a lot longer but,
2: I, I i'm i'm even wondering if a year is too much bob <laughs> I, I i i i remember that uh I, I think it it was uh, a few months. I think it was in. I think it was actually December of 2017. At 2007, uh, at the at the F, F the FOM Fed meeting, staff came in and said we see almost no probability of a recession. And in fact, in that month, the recession began. Uh, in December of '07, yeah. and of course things then rapid in '08, of course, rapidly deteriorated. I, I think it—you point that out in the book. I mean, it, it's yeah. it the, the ability to predict recession on the part of economists is 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 pretty bad.
0: Uh, yeah, of uh, course they're better than weather forecasters, <laughs> who we can't go out more than a week
2: that is <laughs> a little better than weather but you know uh, you know a lot of uh, i I think this is also true a lot of people then criticize oh they're no good they can't forecast out but don't forget I think a lot of you you, you could still be very useful as a macro economist or policymaker even if you can't forecast right as long as you can pursue policies that moderate or mitigate the situation, which I think actually was done in 2008 and 2009. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Bernanke and the aggressive policy stance he took. He couldn't—it's he, absolutely true. He did not predict that recession. Um, but, uh, you know, the policy responses that he took were aggressive and um, I think made it uh, much less uh, serious than it looked like it could become.
0: Well, I'm an admirer of Ben Bernanke, too. But I think that part of what he informed him wasn't uh, abstract economic theory so much as history. Yeah. And one thing he wanted to stop was bank runs, right?
2: I think he learned from Milton Friedman. Don't you think monetary history of the United States was important in his thoughts? Uh, Definitely. I mean, I don't know if you could call that a narrative. You don't actually do that, but— you know, the, 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 yeah, and we're going to talk about the Great Depression because that's, I think, a fascinating part of your book. You know, what caused it? What did people say caused it? Um, for, um, you, you know, you, you point out in in the book that during the Depression, people were talking about automation and there's just too many uh, automation and technology was taking over the jobs. There's just not enough work anymore. Um we got the general story right afterwards with Galbraith uh, that it was the great stock market crash and that, that sort of put the negative. Actually, I think Milton Friedman was the one that sort of poo-pooed that, said, no, it was the bank runs, the collapse of the money supply and the, you know, the paralysis in the financial system that did it. And I'm going to prevent that from happening. I mean, these were all also types of narratives. Would, would you not say so?
0: Right. Well, there's always a multiple. That's why it's difficult. There's always multiple narratives at the same time, and you have to ask what, what is important. And I that requires human judgment. So if I quote Alfred Marshall, the great economist at the turn of the last century, like 1900, economics is not an exact science. Uh, institutions change, narratives change, people's objectives change. And uh, it, it requires human judgment to do optimal forecast.
1: So let me just reintroduce our guest real quick. We're talking with Bob Schiller about his new book, Narrative Economics, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. If I could just ask one quick question, Bob, on, on what is, when you when you see the investing narratives today, you know, we, we were just talking about Professor Siegel with, at the start of the show, rates are going to stay low forever. Where do you see the narratives today? Like, what are the most important narratives that you're focused on? You talked about Trumpism sort of supporting right. the, the record expansion. What What are the narratives you're focused on?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of them. I don't have a, a, a list. I'm working on it. <laughs> but One of them is the artificial intelligence narrative. Uh, but it's not biting in the U.S. so much. Maybe in other countries. Fear of losing one's job to a robot. It doesn't seem active in the U.S. Uh, as in, in terms of reducing consumption demand. I think that somehow we feel that it's our glory. Artificial Although, just,
2: just interjecting, I mean, isn't Andrew Yang's Whole presidential bid based on the fact that robots and AI are going to, you know, cause massive job right. deterioration, and he has a a, 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 a fan club, a huge. It's huge, but part. it's a it's it's not, it's not a majority by far in the Democratic Party, but it's a very very devoted fan club.
0: Yeah, there there is enthusiasm for this, and there are people who worry a lot about it. And I think the uh, there could be a groundswell of support. If we do have a recession, it might be a severe recession, partly because the fed is the interest rates are already low but on 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 top of that, I think fears are somewhat uh, not spreading as much as they will. What happened in the great depression the 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 fear of technological unemployment began to surge in nineteen twenty nine just before the crash and uh for example Stuart Chase wrote a a popular book called Men and Machines that was about machines replacing jobs. That, that was in 1929, just before the uh, 29 crash. And after the 29 crash, people started to bring that thing up a lot, and it became uh, huge. It went viral, the story of technological unemployment. So I think that we're, we have that as a risk factor right now. Because people are very interested in artificial intelligence and all the things it can do, amazing! It's just constantly in the news. Not as big as Trump, but it's pretty big.
2: You know, and and uh, when I finished the depression, and, and 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 by the way, some of your quotes are they're really colorful in terms of people experiencing the, what they thought and experienced in life there. You really, I think, picked out some really wonderful ones. When I finished, though, I had a little bit of an empty feeling, being an economist, so I wanted wanted to ask you. We economists attribute the Great Depression to a collapse of aggregate demand. I mean, clearly automation was not the cause.
0: But not the direct cause. It might have been a narrative that scared people.
2: So it—but— which and in and, uh, uh, a a false narrative, though I mean one that right. d- the data and that scared people. Um
1: that, that was one of his interesting points: that the truth doesn't matter; that this sort of fake stories spread more than the true stories.
2: And do you think that discouraged? Right. So, d- d- but now, was it a collapse of consumption or investment? I mean that or there was too much speculation or the you know the negative the negative story that that was told was when the stock market crashed people thought oh my god the good times are over we overextended ourselves um uh is that that was was,
0: the narrative yeah a big narrative
2: was that and 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 then the the question was is there anything we could do to get out of it now as economists we, you know, Keynes was saying we've got to have expansionary policy. Of course, monetary policy, basically, interest rates were zero. We were, we were kind of in that zero lower bound there, and he was the one who started t- talking about deficit spending, um, government spending, um, and, and it was it was a new theory at that point. Obviously, it hadn't filtered it wasn't even accepted by most economists in the 30s it wasn't until the 40s and later that it became really uh uh prominent uh there but uh, you 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 didn't mention the keynesian the rise of keynesian economics or at least i don't remember that in 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 that narrative
0: uh the rise of yeah well keynesian economics actually dates back to the 1890s a little bit if you read Robert Diamond's history of Keynesian economics, uh, it but it wasn't yeah it wasn't uh, considered uh, um, worked out by theorists. But people were doing a little bit of there during the depression of the 1890s.
2: You you know you, that's
0: when uh, Minneapolis uh, dug one of its lakes. You know there's beautiful lakes in Minneapolis. They're artificial. One of them is at least it was dug out by hand labor. During the Depression of the eighteen nineties, but they didn't have yeah they didn't. Have you authority. mean they didn't
2: need it, but they just wanted to employ people? Is, I mean, I'm I'm a little they wanted, con- yeah. They,
0: in the, in uh, in Minneapolis, they 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 wanted to find jobs, and someone said, "Why don't we have a beautiful, picturesque lake here in Minneapolis?"
2: Public works.
0: Not yeah, no. They had steam shovels. So that was a bit of a problem. They were just coming in. <laughs> <laughs> But they they did it by hand. Maybe they used some steam shovels. I don't know. It's a big project digging out a lake.
2: You know. You know that reminds me of the very famous uh, Milton Friedman quote uh, when he went to China, and uh, this was back in the '80s, early on when they were very early development, and he went to a construction site uh, for a highway, and he saw thousands, hundreds of, of men with shovels, you know, just manual shovels. And he yeah. said, why aren't you using steam shovels? You do have them. And he respo- uh, the, the Chinese official responded, oh, but we put so many more people to work <laughs> because we have sho- shovels. But then Milton Friedman responded, well, why don't you have everyone use spoons? You would put millions to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds crazy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you, you point out Howard Scott, was, he was a Columbia engineer that also feared. Uh, what, tell us a little bit about him, because you mentioned him in the book also.
0: I'm sorry, I don't remember.
2: Was he the guy the technocracy oh, um Oh, yes, right. Um so and it, he was the the guy in engineering that felt that that he would be that there would be so much more robots and 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 AI in in, in the economy?
0: Yeah, they had a, a book called the was it called the ABCs of uh economics, something like that. It came out in the early 1930s and uh it was kind of incoherent, I think. Oh. <laughs> uh, they wanted to have uh, a new form of money. It was a little bit like Bitcoin or bimetallism in other episodes uh, that would revolutionize the economy. And they called. They wanted to do it in, instead of trading in terms of dollars. You trade in, in terms of what? <laughs> okay. Oh,
2: okay. I, 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 you know, when you talk about after World War II. I I remember Samuelson, who became a converted Keynesian, went around saying we're going to have a depression right, after right. the war. Milton Friedman said, really, well, if you know if you keep the money supply healthy, uh, you're not going to have one. We didn't have one. I mean, it was sort of. That was sort of a big surprise. I mean, um, all the GIs that were coming back from the war really stimulated the economy. Of course, it was healthy. There was optimism, young people, the baby boomers, which you also talk about, I think, really interestingly in the book. We've got Nobel Prize-winning economist
1: Robert Schiller, who just published the new book, Narrative Economics how stories go viral and drive major economic events. Uh, and right before the show, Bob, we started talking about uh, Bitcoin, which is also very narrative-driven. Professor, I know, theory of money. You know What is Bitcoin? Is it uh, all driven by narrative? What is the narrative driving Bitcoin?
2: Yeah, I mean, I do remember, because you've written a bit about New York Times and others, I think you and I share the idea we don't think Bitcoin is like uh, the thing of the future. Um, but... Talk, tell us a little bit about how how the, the narrative of Bitcoin fits fits into the thesis of your book.
0: Well, yeah, Bitcoin is an outgrowth of cryptography, which is a theory of how to put things into codes. And uh, it's a cool idea, actually. I kind of like it, but I don't know that it has a future either. I, but that's not the point. I'm asking, why did it become so famous, and why did it have value? Where does this idea that the Bitcoin... Should be worth a lot of money. Where did that come from? Because it's just an entry on a, a in a accounting sheet that uh, in, that's that, that's divided up among many computers. Why you know you, the public could have equally thought this isn't worth anything and just dismissed it. Why did it get so popular? Uh, and I think the answer is something to do with the the narrative that they put around it. So the narrative it, it talks about a of someone called Satoshi Nakamoto who invented it. And it's a neat story because where is he? (laughs) Nobody can find him. It's a mystery story. Nobody ever mentions having even met him. So he just communicated by email to people and got them willing to start Bitcoin. So it's a neat story. And it's, it's cool because it has to do with computers and advanced computer science.
2: Now, now, there is, uh, you know, uh, le- le- let me give you the case for Bitcoin. I mean, I think there's many more cases against it. But, um, uh, uh, you know, we-, we have money that's produced by the government and controlled by the government. And, you know, we, we-, we transfer it through bank deposits, you um, uh, uh, with Without too much ease, I mean, we're being weaned from a checking system, but transfers are still not really easy. Uh, here's an, a, a way to transfer purchasing power. And I think one of the big attractions in its early use was actually the anonymity of the transfer. Um, uh, if people didn't want to be traced for tax reasons or legal transactions reasons, Bitcoin was uh, the... the uh, uh, so-called uh, asset of choice or currency of, of choice. So, in that sense, I mean, there there would be reasons for people to want to actually trans uh, uh, transact in some sort of an anonymous, uh, untraceable asset. Do you do you think that that uh, has some weight, Bob?
0: That that is part of it, absolutely. Uh, so it's uh, including criminals.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, who, uh, absolutely.
0: Who want to? Uh...
2: Yeah, the early use of the on Silk Road with what what was his name Ross Obrick, who invented that and 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 we all know that actually now when if you you know these cyber pirates when they freeze your computer I mean they demand payment in only Bitcoin they obviously don't want anyone to be able to trace it so in a way it sort of replaced uh, suitcases of hundred dollar bills. Which have to be physically transferred between agents. Now it can be transferred electronically uh, through Bitcoin. I mean that I think produces its own demand. Now, obviously, the the enthusiasts and those that are trying to convince individuals to buy it are not telling that story. They think it's you know the wave of the future in terms of a non-government controlled asset that has a limit to how much it's going to be and. And therefore, would not be inflated away in the future, and um, can be used by transactions. Um, but right. the,
0: uh, the mythology of it is, that, yeah, that <clears throat> governments commit crimes too. It happens in history. When when I visited Lithuania, someone there told, brought up Bitcoin, and he said, "You know, when the Russians took over, the Soviets took over in the nineteen forties. If you were a person of any means, you lost everything, and they." Sh- they took your house, they took your portfolio of investment mm-hmm. and they sent you to Siberia. And you couldn't come back for 25 years. <laughs> so what if, he said, what if I had Bitcoin back then? <laughs> and uh, I, I could have waited out the 25 years and come back, and I'd have it all. They can't take it away from me. They don't know my uh, private key. They can't take it away
2: right uh, and of course I, I guess another thing is you could try to bury gold or or transfer it to someone of course the best thing to do is if you could get out but that that's uh, that that's a, that's an interesting point it's with when somebody has a physical thing they, they cannot actually lay claim to that and uh, who knows I mean you know through history that 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 certainly has happened um, so it's, it's like this self-reinforcing
1: feedback loop that the narrative wins the Bitcoin becomes the sort of key new asset just like gold sort of yeah. didn't have a case until it became like the asset and now bitcoins the digital gold but well, don't
2: forget gold was the original money I mean silver maybe copper I mean I knew it it, it was metal that had a value that was very close to the the stamp on it yeah now of course as governments went on they stamped more value on it than the value of the metal because they wanted to earn seniorage et cetera and so on and then we went to paper money which was ultimately you know trust in the government not inflating it away but you know gold was the original really the original money back two three hundred years ago gold coins were good around the world and um but they were a physical thing that you had with you and you know, someone who's going to come and get you, you know, where could you hide them? Where could you transfer them? Um, that's why some people actually put their wealth in diamonds because there was you could get millions of dollars in a much smaller amount and, and be able maybe to to hide it and uh, be able to do it. But you're right. Bitcoin is something that they can't get the physical uh, 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 limit on. And um, diamonds aren't divisible. Yeah. Uh, and they are in the divisibility of 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 of, of the diamonds uh, on that. Um, uh, let let's let's move a little bit. Um, I mean, you talk a little bit about the bubble 2000. Um, you you don't mention um, the CAPE ratio. <laughs> I know you and I have discussed that a lot over over time in terms of uh, the valuation of the stock market. Um, I know our listeners out there want a little bit, Bob, about you, you said you thought this expansion could continue longer. What do you think about this bull market that, that we have? The,
0: the, the, the what?
2: The bull market that, that we have running so long. I guess since 2009, we have not had that 20 percent decline yet. So it's, it's not the longest, I think, in history, but I think it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly among the longest.
0: Yeah, well, I, I I don't claim that I can forecast accurately. My CAPE ratio only forecasts about a, a quarter of the variance of stock returns So, and, and long-term returns. So right now, uh, the CAPE ratio is around 30, and it's suggesting a uh, return in the stock market, if you just take this historical relation, of something like 4.5%.
2: Is that real so or nominal? nominal. That's nominal.
0: Well, yeah, it, it, these calculations are there's different ways of doing it, so it might it might be a little different from that, but uh, it 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 might and, and given that uh, short rates are or, or, or and long rates are still low, the alternative isn't so good. Okay. Uh, so I'm not so negative about the stock. Now was
2: it four and a half percent? I'm sorry, was that real or is that nominal?
0: That's nominal.
2: That is nominal. So with two percent. Inflation, it's two and a half, yeah. which is much lower than the historical average. Um, right. Uh, now, I, I know that, uh, uh, you know, knowing that you were going to be on, um, I asked Jeremy um, here to do a little bit of updating of your CAPE ratio. Um, as you know, or as our listeners might know, that Bob's great innovation with the CAPE ratio was actually using a 10-year Average of past earnings, rather than this year, next year, or past one year or whatever, um, it did a much better job at long-term forecasting than than the one year. Um, also, we are just now coming out of ten years of that terrible earnings in 2009, right, Bob? So in a right. way, those some of those very low numbers are. Dropping out and will be dropping out very soon, um, and about uh, Jeremy, uh, did we we if if we were if we did the if, forecast, what do we get for that cap ratio uh, in the next year?
1: If you just kept the same prices for next year and earnings were basically flat from this year, I think you go from twenty nine and a half to twenty seven and a half something. So that's like. two,
2: and if you'd actually get some increase in earnings in the following year, get down to about twenty six or so uh 26 27
1: I think we yeah, it was like 27 4 versus 27 6 it wasn't that okay, much different. it was much different. If you if you assumed earnings were going to grow. Right, right.
2: Does that does that that makes it a little bit better, does it, Bob? If we can Well, h- any price
0: price earnings ratio is uh, uh, is problematic. It's just one measure. But how about going to quarterly earnings? <laughs> how about doing price earnings ratio with that would be even worse. That's going the other direction. But if you did that, I think earnings were negative in the uh, fourth quarter of two thousand eight, on the S and P five hundred, yes, and so you can't even compute a price earning; it'd be off to infinity.
2: Right, right. So that
0: doesn't make any sense.
2: Right. No, you you need you, you need you need some sort of average. Um, now, of course, and and this reflects a little bit about what we talked about earlier. You know, in the past ten years, almost always included a recession. Now doesn't right, necessarily right. so you when you say cyclically adjusted your your' you're, you're, you're you know it's a little bit it's a little more problematical if we were going to get to decade-long expansions you know what is the right level to use um, it's 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 uh, it more w- wouldn't you say maybe maybe we need more a time
0: period? Well, yeah, I've thought of waiting, doing a weighted average of earnings with exponentially decaying weight. Yeah,
2: that would give you not as much of an overvaluation, certainly, because of that weight of 2009 being so strong. In, I, I think
0: it's mostly out now. The the, the, the uh, well, anyway. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, we did get it down to as 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 Jeremy said into the 27 points, Laura. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another. Thinking about the 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 cap ratio, um, when you first did it, you didn't do a total return ratio, right? You did just a price ratio. Right.
0: We it's, have now. I have a total return ratio on on the website. I,
2: I, okay. I mean, is that website. is so? Just to give our listeners a little bit of, of the question, uh, uh, you know, the price there's two factors in terms of uh, return for shareholders. One is the dividend and the other is the capital gain. Um, What we have over the long period of time is that the um, dividend has become smaller as firms have repurchased shares and reinvested, and therefore the capital gain has been uh, larger. And this makes a difference because if you take a 10-year average, we have a steeper uh equilibrium so to speak cur- uh a uh, dividend growth path than we do before so if uh so as we reduce the dividend we are going to tend to look like we are more overvalued uh by use of the traditional cape ratio is, is that right. does, does that right re- now bob you said you had the total is that what we you were you were quoting from a total no, return that
0: was that was not but <clears throat> Okay. Uh, but even so, the, the the total return cape does forecast stock returns as well.
2: Uh, is that uh, uh, less bearish than what we have it, on? it's the,
0: not that much different usually. We had an extreme low earnings in two thousand eight
2: nine. Right. Um, well, I guess two thousand nine. Would it still? It, it's is it ten years? Would that still be? Was that still in it, Jeremy? When you did it? Yeah. When does it yeah. come out? It, is, basically next year. It's it's completely out. 2020 would be out, and we get we had that recovery of the earnings as far as that's concerned. Um, uh, so maybe it's not as bad as two percent real. Um, yeah. you know maybe I mean I, I I actually think that we're probably close to five to six is 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 the, is the real um, looking forward. I think we. Are going to be at permanently. not when I say permanently, that's a kind of a misleading word. But at price earnings ratios that are going to be above their historical average. Yeah. When,
0: because when you, because uh, said permanently.
2: Permanently, permanently is, I, mean, not, I mean the average. The I mean I think we have. Let me put use the word, and it's overused. A new normal. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, uh, yeah, I know those are dangerous words when everyone thinks it's new. But, you know, you, you know, the historical P.E. ratio averages around 15, um, and, but that was a world where I think um, it was diffi- more, much more difficult to get a diversified portfolio and much more costly than it is today. And that that would in and of itself argue for a higher ratio today than you would yeah. historically. What do you think of that, Bob? It
0: reminds me, I mean, to be combative here. No, no, it's good. They, <laughs> not. they,
2: li- they like a little combat here. <laughs> in
0: 1930, Professor Irving Fisher published a book called The, the Great Crash and After. Uh, he must have written it in 1929. You know, it takes time to write a book. And it must have changed the title in the last minute, <laughs> put it out, But he has a chapter on, entitled A New Level for the Price-Earnings Ratio and he claimed that the price-earnings ratio now in 1929 or 1930 would be high forever uh, because of uh, a number of changes in the economy. Uh, He also, in 1929, around the same time, made a famous uh, quote. It's his most famous quote. Yeah,
2: permanently high plateau, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. So... uh, Nothing is permanent in finance,
2: I think. Permanently low rates, permanently low inflation. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... You know, know, when I say permanently, I mean... You don't mean permanently. Well, when I... No, when I said permanently... So, I... You know, don't forget, I actually... When I was talking about maybe higher ratios, I didn't even say the fact that interest rates might be lower for a long period of time. I mean... Um, I do because I think the demographic factors are driving real interest rates down.
0: Right, that's an interesting theory. I, I, you, we've talked about yeah, that.
2: and I think that that now we could talk about how much that might affect the equilibrium PE ratio. It certainly shouldn't have a negative effect, um, but it you know that also might. Uh, contribute to a little bit of that. I well, think Irving Fisher, and you know, going back to that, he did. There were the beginning of these investment funds that did give that diversification. Of course, they're not. They were not anywhere near as uh, cost efficient as today's index funds. But I think didn't he also mention that that was another way that they right. would uh, maybe give a rationale?
0: Also, he he mentioned that. Investors were more sophisticated now in 1929 and knew that stocks have always outperformed other investments.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just like people always, well, they read, read my book, Stocks for the Long Run, right? So, I mean, you know, uh, when Glasswin and Hassman wrote the book Dow 30,000, they based it on that factor, that...
0: Um, sorry. Uh, oh. Professor Siegel's yeah, phone sorry. going off here. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but I'm trying
1: B- to. Bob, let me ask a question summarizing some of the, uh, you know, if we talk about the CAPE ratio and, and pessimistic returns, do, do you, and we talk about like low bond rates also implying pessimistic returns for tips right. yields being zero, how, how does that influence your bottom line? I mean, are you, when you think about your allocation to stocks versus bonds, would you say you're... Normally allocated, above average allocated. How do you think about your own personal allocations?
0: Uh, I don't like to use mine as an example, but in fact, I'm less allocated to U.S. stocks, but the, for the uh, cape ratio is uh, pretty much lower in every other country. So we and are- I agree
2: with that. By the yeah. way, that that better opportunities are outside the U.S., even in Europe and in the emerging markets than in the U.S. looking forward three to five years. I will tend to agree with that.
0: And there's a home bias to most investors. They're investing in their own country, not because they've thought about it. It's just that they're here.
2: Well, not your own. So do, do, if you were to give allocation advice today to individuals, I mean, do you have any rough allocations you would mention, Bob?
0: Uh, I, well, there's, there are other assets like there's commodities and real estate. Real estate is somewhat highly priced too, so it may, yeah, it may be a low interest rate uh, phenomenon, a yeah. normal phenomenon. Uh, and the important thing is to diversify and hold things all over the world and at different asset classes. Uh, and uh, but I would I would be somewhat reduced in exposure to the United States. I don't know if I can put out a number. It depends on your age and
2: now now when you say reduced now the, uh, the the interesting if we do a market weight on equity the U.S. is about one half. Yep. So I mean and no, most people are nowhere near fifty percent outside the U.S. I mean there's probably a few more aggressive ones that are. So with that one half, I mean most people would you say. I want to get you from 10 to 20 outside the U.S., or 20 to 30, or are you saying, hey, you should have more than one half outside the U.S.? I mean, the narrative, just tied to this book, is that the U.S. is going to outperform forever and
1: gross stocks and tech is going to lead and value yeah. is going to never outperform again.
0: My main advice is that one should get a... Well, first of all, read Jeremy Siegel <laughs> and then also get an advisor.
2: <laughs> and get an advisor, actually... I say get an advisor, not because advisors can pick better stocks necessarily, um, but to get advisors to hold your hand when things get tough and not to panic out at the bottom. I think the, the best thing about advisors is keeping you in a long run focus. And um, and obviously, you need maybe an advisor to handle the taxes and estates or whatever else you've got to deal with. But in terms of having that long-run focus, I think that's really, really important.
0: Uh, also, they important. tell you not to put everything in Bitcoin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Which we would absolutely recommend in, in, in terms of, uh, of that. Um, when I, I want to go back a little bit, because you know uh, Jeremy Schwartz asked about some of the current narratives, and you talked about AI and robotics and everything. and that isn't as strong maybe in the U.S. But do you give any credence to that? Do you think there is trouble on the horizon with AI and robotics in terms of employment opportunities for well, Americans and individuals?
0: Uh, people have been worrying about the effects of labor-saving machines. That's the term that goes back 200 years. Uh, In fact, they've been worrying about it for thousands of years. Aristotle worried about it. A brief paragraph in one of his books uh, in ancient Greece. Uh, So it hasn't happened yet. So far it's been making our lives better. On the other hand, artificial intelligence is really changing fast. And I don't know when, when, but there, 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 there could be a time when there aren't jobs for a lot of people. Uh, they're more trouble than they're worth to the, an employer when he can get a machine to do it. And that, that could come. I don't know how soon that will come. It's definitely a worry for our time. And some people say that whether you know, it'll, there will always be new jobs for people. But I, I compared, it was Vasily Ziantiav who said, what about horses, okay? There were a lot of jobs for horses 100 years ago or 200 years ago. What happened to the horses? They didn't find other jobs. They ended up in the slaughterhouse. And so the same thing could happen to people of low, uh, well, of low market value.
1: Well, that is a pessimistic note to end on the program here. But Bob, uh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. We had Robert Schiller, author of the new Narrative Economics. Uh, Professor Siegel, thanks for joining us in the studio for the hour. Our producer, Patty Hall. Sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. On our new times, 12 o'clock Eastern every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com.